Alright everyone, hello and welcome to the 17th episode of the Screenplay Archaeology Podcast. I'm your host, Kiramid Head, and tonight I am bringing you another solo episode. And this time I'm going to be talking about Nottingham, which is one of the more famous recent examples of an unmade film, which kind of sort of got made as the Ridley Scott Robin Hood, but it got changed completely in the rewriting process into something else entirely. And the basic plot of it is, before I get into all the background stuff, is that it's following the Sheriff of Nottingham and showing his point of view of the legend, because he gets he comes back from the Crusades and gets assigned the job of the Sheriff of Nottingham, and ends up having to investigate a series of murders where pure-blood Norman nobles are being killed by, by, by arrows, and it's believed that, you know, the local outlaw Robin Hood might be behind it, but of course we all know it isn't him, and so we're seeing him investigate using period accurate, at least to an extent, forensics to find out who the killer is. And background on this one is fairly interesting. I'll start by talking about just the Robin Hood legend in general. It's one of those things where even though it originates from the British Isles, it has a widespread popular appeal. I guess just because the idea of rebelling against authority for a good cause will always have a certain amount of traction among people, especially, you know, in America, where our whole foundation was based upon rebelling against the establishment and all that. I've always enjoyed it from a relatively young age. The two books I remember reading specifically were the Howard Pyle version, which had this sort of old English language to it and some really great illustrations, and you just had this idea of just pure whimsy from it, which made for a very fun read. And then also there was the Roger Lanson Green version, which was a little more modern English and tried and drew from an entire from a very wide range of Robin Hood legends to like stitch a narrative together, which he also did with his King Arthur book, two books I really enjoyed. And it's just an interesting legend full of colorful characters like Robin Hood, the the outlaw without a care in the world, and the big guy Little John and Friar Talk and all that stuff. And it, it just makes for interesting reading and seeing him just stick it to all these different sort of figures who represent the established order, or just greed in general, and then giving something back to the people. It, it just makes for an interesting read. And as far as cinematic depictions of Robin Hood go, I mean, I, I've seen the Errol Flynn version, and I watched that again pretty recently. And that's a movie, it's from 1938, but it still holds up as just a fun adventure movie. Errol Flynn is a strong, charismatic hero. And when you have as your villains... Claude Rains and Basil Rathbone, who are Prince John and Guy of Gisborne, they are just so good that and so much fun to watch that they just completely steal the movie, but in a good way. And there's a there's a whole slew of them I haven't seen. Like I haven't seen the Douglas Fairbanks version or the one with um, Sean Connery and Audrey Hepburn, which that actually sounds really interesting because it sounds like a slightly darker take on them as older characters. So I I want to check that out eventually. Um, I know I'm probably in the minority on this, but I do really enjoy the Kevin Cosner film, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I think that's a, a lot of fun. You know, you got Cosner, who I think is pretty good in it, even if. He kind of sort of does an English accent for about a third of it and then just stops. But I think he gives a pretty good performance. Morgan Freeman's really good in it. And Alan Rickman as the Sheriff of Nottingham is awesome. And his sidekick is Michael Wincott. So once again, two really good villains. So yeah, that that's a really entertaining film. And, and I think it's good to check out. Um, I've seen Robin Hood Men in Tights, which is less good. Which, it, it's not a terrible movie by any means, but it's later period Mel Brooks, so it, it it's bound to be a little bit more of a mixed bag. Some jokes work, some jokes really don't. Like, there's this whole gag about how Prince John has, like, this mole that's always in a different place on his face, and it's like, that's not funny. It's like a crappy version of, of Igor's hump from Young Frankenstein. And, but there are things that are kind of funny in it, like... Like I am, like some other Robin Hoods, I can speak with an English accent, and it's not a complete waste of time. But but I do think it tries a little too hard in specifically spoofing the Cosner movie instead of just spoofing the Robin Hood thing in general. And I do think that Dave Chappelle, while funny in it, is kind of wasted. And his last joke in the movie, where it's like a black sheriff, why not? And he literally looks at the camera and goes, it worked in Blazing Saddles. It's like, oh god, not not that meta humor, no. But the Patrick Stewart cameo is awesome. And it's an alright movie. It, I'm not 
I'm not going to get too mad at it or anything, but it's just, it's just not much. And then later on, we got... There really wasn't a big screen, serious Robin Hood film between the Cosner one and and the um the and the Ridley Scott one which I'll have to talk about in detail because it's going to be part of this whole thing. It's so that I find that actually kind of interesting and I should mention I saw the Disney movie once when I was fairly young and all I really remember about it is is Prince John is a lion and he's constantly every time his mother is mentioned he's just like oh mama and then cries. That's all I really remember about that movie. That and the sheriff of Nottingham almost getting an arrow in his ass at one point. That was kind of funny. But I don't really remember too too much about it. Before I get into the Ridley Scott Robin Hood movie cuz I'll get into that. And I think what I'll do is I'll talk about sort of the I'll talk about, you know, the writers of this script. And then I guess I'll talk about how it became the Ridley Scott Robin Hood. And I'll talk about Robin Hood with a little bit of talk about Ridley Scott's filmography, just because that's always fun to talk about. Like, there's so much there. Ethan Rafe and Cyrus Voris. I'm not hugely familiar with their work. They're the writers of this Nottingham script, which is how I first heard their names. But they created a couple of TV shows, one of which is Brimstone, which... I kind of want to see because there's part of me that just loves the idea of John Glover playing the devil. That just sounds amazing. And they create something called Sleeper Cell, which I haven't seen. They wrote Bulletproof Monk, which was eh, okay. Like, it's a film I saw when I was like 11, and I didn't mind it then, but maybe now, maybe now I wouldn't like it as much. Like, all I can remember is that it's Chow Yun Fat, and then he has to teach Sean William Scott how to be a martial artist, which is kind of funny. It's kind of funny to think there was a time when people thought Sean William Scott was a potential action guy, which is just hilarious to me. And of the stuff they produce, the only other thing I've seen is they have a story credit on Kung Fu Panda, but I have, I actually looked, and I couldn't find any information on what their contribution to that movie actually was. So for all I know, they contributed maybe a few character names, maybe a few lines of dialogue, but that would really be about it. I I'm not really sure, but I do really like Kung Fu Panda, the first one. I think that's actually a pretty strong little animated film. It's just got some incredible visuals in it and some really good character work. And it's really, really good. And Ian McShane is the bad guy and all that. And since I'm on it, Kung Fu Panda 2 was pretty damn good, you know, with Gary Oldman as, like, the hidden knife-throwing swan, was he? Or, like, a like a crane? Like, that actually was pretty good and had some really dark stuff in it. And then, on, and for me, at least, though, the last five seconds of that movie just killed it flat because it undid a lot of the really dark stuff that I liked. Like, the whole panda genocide thing, which is important to Poe's character, just gets completely undone. And I didn't really like it that much. I haven't seen Kung Fu Panda 3. I'm curious because apparently Poe's, like, biological father is Brian Cranston. So, okay, that, that has me interested. But no, I haven't seen that yet. And as far as, um, Rafe and Voris, their, their unproduced work goes. I have a script of theirs called The Future King, which is an adaptation of the Camelot 3000 comic, which is the, the concept is that sometime in the future, King Arthur and his knights, they return to fight an alien invasion, and it kind of turns certain things on their heads. The comic is really good. Like, it is a little bit dated to the 80s, but it's still a, a pretty good read. I have not read the script yet. I mean, I've had it sitting on my hard drive since last November which that's totally going to date this episode, but whatever. But I haven't gotten around to reading it yet. I looked at it here and there. It seems like an all right little adaptation from the little bit of skimming I did. But that's one I'm surprised they didn't. that movie never happened because Camelot 3000 could be a very cinematic thing. And another unproduced thing of theirs I'm somewhat familiar with, I haven't read it because it's not out there, but they were two of the first writers to attack the whole Freddy vs. Jason thing. And from my understanding is that they... How should I put it? They were the first to come up with the idea of giving Freddy and Jason a history together. And I believe in their version, it was that young Freddy molested young Jason and was responsible for his drowning somehow. And the whole thing about Freddy being the one who killed Jason just ends up every single writer who worked on that, aside from the last two guys seem to have been just obsessed with that idea of connecting Freddy versus Jason. So yeah, even though I do like this script that they wrote for Nottingham, and I like some of the stuff that they worked on, yeah, I kind of have to, I kind of have a little bit of a grudge against them for coming up with that concept, which just 
just has haunted me throughout that whole episode. And I read another Freddy vs. Jason script after that episode, which also used that plot device. So it's just like one of my biggest pet peeves was created by these two guys. But yeah, moving on to Nottingham, the story of how they wrote it was that Ethan Rafe, I believe it was, you know, he studied, you know, medieval history and he was a big history guy and he always wanted to do a historical project. But Voris wasn't really into that sort of thing. He was more into pop cultural stuff. I got this from an interview um, on, um, I think it's Bold Outlaw. And, you know, Rafe always wanted to do a historical script, and so he hit on this idea of doing a Robin Hood thing, but putting some period detail into it, and Voris kind of jumped at that. And so they got the idea of, okay, how can we approach this this ages-old material in a different way? And they went, well, let's do a perspective flip. Let's show it from the Sheriff of Nottingham's point of view, show it from the perspective of the quote-unquote bad guy, and show him that maybe he isn't such a bad guy, which is a really great idea. And so they wrote the spec script in about 2006, and uh, let me check the date on the script, actually, real quick. <sighs> yeah, 11-13-06, so yeah, 2006, and it's a first draft. So yeah, they, and they, there ended up being, like, a huge bidding war over this script, and eventually Universal paid out millions of dollars for it, because they, apparently this hook was just that interesting, and I agree, it is a pretty interesting hook, and then Russell Crowe somehow got signed on to star in it. And they were supposed to go meet Russell Crowe in Australia and talk about rewrites and stuff, but then Ridley Scott got signed on to direct, and they never heard another thing from anybody about it, which is kind of a crappy way to treat the writer, you know? Kind of reminds me of um, Shadow of the Vampire, where, where Max Shrek just goes, We do not need the writer, I think. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, no, loath as I am to admit it myself, we need the writer. <laughs> that movie's really good, by the way. Check it out. <laughs> so yeah, they basically got tossed aside like vampire food. because, And the reasons for it I find really, really bizarre because Russell Crowe signed on to this thing. And then Ridley Scott signed on to this thing, but they apparently were not at all interested in making this concept. Which I just kind of find kind of bizarre and confusing on several different levels because... Okay, you have Russell Crowe signs onto this script, and it's a relatively good leading man part in it. He sa he said something along. There's a quote of his. I'm not sure exactly where it's from because I don't have my sources with me right now. But he said, "Oh, it was like CSI Sherwood Forest, and I didn't want to do that." Well, then why did you sign on to it? And then there's various quotes from Ridley Scott where he says things along the lines of, "Well, it was ridiculous because you'd have to spend all your marketing budget explaining why it's not called Robin Hood." And then there was another thing where he said that the script was terrible and it needed a page one rewrite. I disagree with that. I think it has its flaws, but we'll get to that soon. And also, he said in an interview that the only Robin Hood movie he thought was any good was Men in Tights, which, yeah, that kind of gives you a whole interesting sort of perspective just thinking about, well now, Ridley, why did you agree to do this project if you don't even like the source material to begin with? It's such a bizarre sort of choice. Anyway, I suppose I should talk about Ridley Scott as a director in a little bit of detail before I go on to... Duh, 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 before I go on to um, his Robin Hood movie specifically. I think he's a little bit hit or miss. Well, majorly hit or miss. But when he hits, his films are really, really good. And when he misses, they really, really miss. And sometimes he hits smack dab in the middle and makes something that just isn't particularly remarkable. But I mean, Alien, Blade Runner, Gladiator... The Director's Cut of Kingdom of Heaven are all films I do very much like. Now, I haven't seen everything he's directed, by the way. Those are all pretty damn good films. And then he did stuff like G.I. Jane, which I've seen pieces of, but it just never really appealed to me. I remember all those stupid trailers where it looked like they were all shot through a ridiculous blue filter, and it was all focused on Demi Moore shaving her head, because that's such a... I don't know, the whole concept never really appealed to me. Um, I, oh yeah, I do remember liking Matchstick Man, but sometimes he can be, he can be really, really bad like like for example robin hood i don't think is very good at all prometheus i think hits right in the middle it's not great it's not terrible it's just all right it's it's a movie which is visually spectacular and has interesting ideas it doesn't quite come together it's depending way too much on its sequel to really have its ideas come together in any sort of interesting cohesive whole and since Alien Covenant is looking like it's almost kind of a partial reboot of the whole Prometheus thing anyways from, from what I've been hearing about it, uh, I don't know. And also, you know, he had two really, really bad misses in a row just this past couple of years. He had The Counselor, which I know that movie has its passionate fans who will defend it with their dying breath, but 
for my part, I found it to be a boring, pretentious slog, and I'm a fan of Cormac McCarthy, but he wrote almost like a play, not a movie. If he was like a Greek tragedy playwright, that kind of thing could be pulled off, but just writing, it's weird, because usually when he writes, he writes characters who, there'll, there'll be at least one character who makes big philosophical speeches, one or two. But for the counselor, he just went, fuck it, everybody but Michael Fassbender is going to talk like that. Or, and maybe Penelope Cruz when we let her talk. And the whole thing was just a, a mess. It was annoyingly vague, and I just don't like the film very much, sorry. And then Exodus, what a piece of shit that movie was. And I read the script for that, and all the major problems I had with that movie are in the script. Random jumps in time, which are the biggest problems with it, and just... I, ideas that are half-baked. Really, the only problems it fixed was that a couple of minor characters had more screen time and actual motivation. That's it. So yeah, the movie, that was a terrible movie and the script wasn't much better. I did really like The Martian, though. I haven't seen the director's cut of it. I don't know why it needed one, but whatever. But yeah, so he's a director whom I like, but I have very mixed feelings towards just because his filmography, he can be really hit or miss. And to go into Robin Hood specifically... That's a film where I watched it recently and it's already kind of just leaving my memory again because there's not a lot to it and it's not a terribly interesting story. Now what's weird about it is that basic sort of concept of doing a grittier, more history-grounded take on Robin Hood is not a bad idea. I can see that working. The way the movie is done, it's just not presented in any sort of interesting way. It's mashed up with all this governmental in court palace intrigue and ending ending up with the Magna Carta so it's like a weird protracted origin story for Robin Hood that's mashed up with this protracted origin story for the Magna Carta and they're both just so not interesting in the way they're presented that I just did not give a single shit about anything. And the whole storyline of Robin Hood posing as this nobleman, which apparently that came from one of the rewrites on Nottingham, where it got rewritten into Robin Hood posing as the sheriff of Nottingham, whom he sees die in battle, and then it got further rewritten and further rewritten and became him posing as this guy called Loxley. It could be interesting seeing him pose as a lord and then seeing injustice and then having to flee into the forest and become an outlaw because of it. That could have been interesting, and the way his relationship with Marion is written in that, where at first they don't think much of each other and they kind of sort of, you know, gain sort of, you know, they, they see like a certain amount of nobility in each other and then they fall in love. That could work, but it is so completely torpedoed by Russell Crowe, because I'm a Russell Crowe fan. But in that movie particularly, he just does not seem to give a shit. He's like, not, he seems like he's just showing up for the paycheck. He doesn't seem involved in anything. Like, he gets this revelation about his father, whom he doesn't remember because he has amnesia or something. And like, and the whole repeated till it ad nauseum phrase, rise and lie, rise again until lambs become lions. And he gets lost in all that and his performance just is just flat. Like, there are scenes where him and Marion have what should be classic, romantic, snappy dialogue with each other, and it doesn't work, because Russell Crowe isn't giving a shit, and Kate Blanchett, because she's supposed to be playing off of him, doesn't have much to work with, their relationship doesn't feel genuine. It's just not a very good movie because of that. And because you're focusing on this not terribly interesting stuff with Robin that's getting torpedoed because of Russell Crowe. There's not enough time for the Magna Carta stuff to be as interesting as it could potentially be. And that's a number of great actors right there who are just wasted, like William Hurt, who has a significant role that doesn't seem to mean much. He's just sort of there. You have Mark Strong, whom I like Mark Strong, but the character of Godfrey, who is Prince John's best friend, who's secretly working for the King of France because being really powerful and influential isn't enough. It's just a really lame, crappy villain with crappy, underexplained motivations, who, at one point, he does his most evil thing he does in the movie is that he attacks Nottingham, which in this interpretation, for some reason, is the tiniest goddamn village. Like, it's slightly bigger than the Treehouse Village from Battle for the Planet of the Apes. And he goes and he, like, kills old, blind Max von Sydow and, like, sets some buildings on fire fire, and he does it purely because he's salty over the fact that Robin scarred his face with an arrow and he has, like, half a Joker smile. Like, get over yourself, you stupid prima donna. And every time he's on screen, 
they like overemphasize the clanking of his armor, which no one else sounds like, by the way, just to make sure. Yeah, this guy, he's big clanking. And really, the only performance in that movie that really inspires anything in me is Oscar Isaac as Prince John, because he hams it up so much and still manages to be at least the tiniest bit sympathetic in certain scenes. And he's just so much fun to watch, particularly the ending with the whole outlaw thing at the end. He's great, but he doesn't have a whole lot to work with, but he somehow manages to shine above everyone else. And one little detail I find is kind of weird is that they seem to have lifted a scene from a completely different Russell Crowe movie. The bit in The Beautiful Mind where he comes up with his big theorem about how, about how you know, you gotta go for, for the dumpy brunettes before you go for the pretty blonde, and that's his whole mathematical thing. They do a scene that's not unlike that in Robin Hood, where, like, his merry men who came back from the crusade with him, they're... They're like in the tavern at Nottingham, and one of them is like, the trick is not to go for the prettiest one, but go for the homely one on the left. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> you just stole that from a Beautiful Mind movie. Don't don't try and pretend any different. So yeah, it's a film that you, And then you get the whole thing about how France is going to invade England, and so they're using Godfrey to turn them all against each other, and then the French show up at the end in fucking, like, D-Day-style landing boats, only you have to row them, and it, it just feels like Ridley Scott was looking for an excuse to do his own version of the opening of Saving Private Ryan. Well, admittedly, the bit where Russell Crowe kills Mark Strong via arrow camera was pretty awesome. You still got really stupid shit like Marion putting on armor, and leading those weird feral kids from Sherwood Forest into battle, which is just a weird plot point anyways, those kids. And I watched the director's cut, where it's like 20 minutes longer, and most of it is with those kids in the forest, and I still did not give a shit about them. And the whole thing with Marion going into battle is just dumb, because they already set her up as a pretty strong character in her own right, where she was looking after the land while her husband was away, and doing as well as she could. And I, and she was willful and strong, and I liked her. And then they do this stupid token thing where she puts on medieval battle armor and goes into battle and almost gets her ass kicked. So it's like, yeah, you just made her look weak by trying to make her look strong. Whatever. So yeah, the movie isn't very good, and when you read about the production, it, it's so weird because Ridley Scott decided he didn't like the script. He brought in Brian Helgel in to rewrite it decided he still wasn't satisfied with it, brought in a writer called Paul Webb who went uncredited to rewrite it, and decided he still wasn't satisfied, so they had to delay the release for a year. It was supposed to be a big tentpole movie for 2009. Because Ridley Scott couldn't settle on the script, they had to delay it a year to 2010. They brought back Brian Helgeland to rewrite it again, and that still wasn't satisfactory, so while they were filming, they had Tom Stoppard rewriting the dialogue. So yeah, that explains why the movie is such a mess. And then there was an interview around the time Prometheus came out, where Ridley Scott even admitted he lost interest in the movie while he was making it. Because James Cameron visited him on set and said, Why are you wasting your time with this? You should be making... You should be making science fiction like you used to it. Ridley Scott went, yeah, I really should. Probably said that between cigar smoke. And so yeah, he admitted he lost interest in the film lost interest in the film because of that James Cameron visit, and it's just, man, that just seems like such a doomed production between all the pointless rewrites and people not even liking the thing they signed on for, and yeah, it's not a very good movie. So I suppose that leads us into the script itself. I have to say, on the whole, I think it's pretty good. It has some notable flaws, which I'll talk about as I go on, but I think on the whole, it's a relatively strong first draft. And pretty much what the story is here is that it's following this guy called Sir Robert Tornum, who is serving as the sheriff of Cyprus while Richard is on crusade, and he successfully defends this castle. And then Richard decides that he doesn't want to hold on to Cyprus anymore. You know, he needs more money to fund his campaign, so he sells it to the Knights Templar and then says, Hey, Tornum, I'm giving you another position as the sheriff of Nottingham. And what's interesting about this opening is that it opens with, you know, the local Cypriots besieging the castle because Richard conquered Cyprus while on crusade. And they're trying to take it back. And, and Tornum, you see him defending it to his last breath, essentially. And it's interesting is that they show certain aspects of, of siege warfare, which is interesting, like, Apparently, the Cypriots are digging a tunnel under the wall, and Tornum catches onto this, so he has his own men dig a tunnel. And he brings, like, a glass, he brings, like, like a bowl full of water down and lays, like, like a needle or something in it, which then points towards where they're, 
like the vibrations of them digging it points towards where they're digging it. So they lie and wait for the Cypriots to dig into their tunnel. And then they surprise attack them and then chase them through the two tunnels out into the camp and then route it. So it's an interesting sort of battle scene and it shows sort of the ingenuity of the character of Tornum. And I think that's actually a pretty good way. It shows that he is very loyal and he will defend his charge to the very end. And we get this idea that he's just a very smart individual, and I like that. I like that sets up the characters, you know, his his basic competence first. I, I think that's a good way to go about it. Now, as for... And I also like the idea that, that Richard the Lionheart isn't such a spotless character here. He's not in it much, but he's definitely flawed. And the whole thing of, you know... You know, Tornum goes through all this to defend this castle, only to give it up immediately afterwards, pretty much. I thought that was pretty cool. Now, another, what's a weird thing with this script is introduced here during this Cypress section is that you meet Tornum's squire, Thomas Leslie, who's described as being 60 and decently well-educated, and he's like this snarky servant who's always being sarcastic, and he's like opening his master's mail and making like arch comments about certain things. And it's bizarre, because he completely reads like Rafe and Voris just watched Batman Begins and went, hey, we want Michael Caine's Alfred in our script. And that's what it feels like. It feels like this would have been Michael Caine's Alfred, probably played by Michael Caine. And and he just doesn't work for me as a character. Like, he's just kind of there for most of it. And he's in it less and less as it goes on. And it seems like there's a point where he betrays Tornum, but then it turns out that has didn't, and then he and he dies towards the end, and then that's it. He's not much of a character, and I don't care for him that much. Also, in Cyprus, there's a weird bit of character development with Tornum, where he apparently plays chess with himself, which I don't really understand. Like, okay, why is that a thing in movies where characters just play chess with themselves? It doesn't make them look smart or tactical. It makes them look like crazy people. Do we not realize that, writers? And he has this weird obsession with this chess set, whom he doesn't play with. He never plays anybody at chess, just himself. But he has this weird obsession with this chess set, and he keeps coming up throughout the script, and I didn't understand that at all. But okay, so... So Tornum, he ends up going back. He ends up getting sent back to England, to Nottingham. And he's he's heading up there, and he's on the outskirts of Nottingham, and here's a really bad part of the script, is that he stops off at a tavern for no other reason than to check up on how much this tavern owner is charging his prostitutes for to stay in the in the in the building. And he says, Oh, you're charging too much according to King Richard's law, blah blah blah. I'm gonna strike down on you if you don't if you don't comply. And then as he leaves, Thomas Leslie looks over at the innkeeper and says, There's a new sheriff in town. God, that line is terrible. It's so cliche and ridiculous. It does not belong there. And I think that might have been the line where Ridley Scott went, yeah, this needs a page one rewrite. So I can kind of understand that reaction, even if I don't think the rest of the script is that bad. But that is a terrible line. And I can't remember them off the top of my head, but there are a few other groaners kind of throughout this thing. But pretty much what happens is that Thomas Leslie and and, and Tornum, they've, they've ridden ahead of the... Of, the, of their entourage, which has most of, of Tornum's possessions with them. And so Tornum, he gets to Nottingham, and this is where the situ situation, situation? Situation is more or less set up. And then he meets Sir Guy of Gisborne, who is, you know, one of Prince John's supporters, who was acting as the standing sheriff of Nottingham while they were waiting for Tornum to arrive. And he basically explains what the situation is, is that members of noble houses have been, have been being murdered via bow and arrow, and it's believed to be Robin Hood, because Robin Hood was this great archer before he became an outlaw. And he sets up sort of the political and social situation in Nottingham as it stands, and that you have the sort of the, the tension between the different ethnic groups, I guess you could say, because you have the Norman Quarter and the Saxon Quarter, and a fair bit is made of conflict between Norman and Saxon, because the Normans were the French nobles who came over and took over England, and the Anglo-Saxons were the English who were living there, who had previously invaded and taken it from the Celts, so tit for tat. And there's also the, the Jewish Quarter, and it's mentioned that a synagogue has been closed up, because King Richard had this weird rule where only synagogues of a certain age could remain open, which... Medieval law doesn't even make sense when you read the laws themselves, so I don't expect it to make a whole lot of sense here. And it does set up for something later on. So yeah, that's the situation, and that these nobles have been murdered in sequence with all these, with arrows. So yeah, that's basically what's going on, and Tornum decides he's going to investigate to see what actually happened, and he determined that it would, 
based on because basically happens there's a scene earlier which happens it, it's a little weirdly inserted between the castle siege and then Tornum getting the news he's going to leave C- Cyprus is that there was a young noble couple who went into the woods near a manor house to have sex and then they got pinned to a tree by an arrow and killed and it went through both of them and so he looks at the entrance and exit and then looks at the damage on the tree and determines what sort of arrow it would have and from how far away they would have had to shoot and I find that sort of investigative thing really interesting like yeah it's been kind of been done to death by the CSI shows and whatnot, but seeing it in the medieval set, I'm not entirely sure how period accurate any of this sort of investigation is, because it seems kind of like Sherlock Holmes a few centuries too early, but it's still interesting to read and makes for kind of a good hook for a script. And pretty much what this leads to is that the manor house was owned by Lord Fitzwater, who is the father of Maid Marian, who was the fiancé of Robin of Loxley before he became an outlaw. And so Tornum goes to visit Marion, who is working in a hospital in Nottingham. And hospital in medieval terms is not very it's not a very good place. It's full of the sick and dying and the mad. And she's introduced like trying to sort of calm down a madman and talk to him and sort of, you know, be able to help him out. And she's not completely successful. But I like how it shows that she's a strong character who really does care about people and wants to help people. This also kind of starts off. Something that's a bit of a problem with the script is that they start a little bit of relationship teasing between Tornum and Marion because there is a definite attraction that builds between them through the script, but it may be a bit of a spoiler considering how early I am into this, but just, but just, you know, it goes nowhere. Like, it's briefly brought up, nothing is really made of it, and then it never goes anywhere by the end. So yeah, there's not much to that. And so he talks to her, and this is where we find out our first little bit about Robin Hood is that, is that they were, they were engaged to be married, but then he stood up for a common man who had killed a king's deer and they were going to hang him. But they hanged the guy anyways and they were going to blind Robin Hood, but then he fled into the woods. And that's that's sort of what the setup for Robin Hood is in this script. Now, I'm going to step back and just talk about the way the two characters are written in this. Because, because Tornum is actually a pretty interesting twist on the Sheriff of Nottingham. Because when you think about it, the Sheriff of Nottingham isn't really a bad guy. He's just doing his job. Like, he's supposed to uphold the king's laws. That's what the sheriff should do, am I right? But he's kind of portrayed as the bad guy because the legend of Robin Hood is all about rebelling against authority. And because, you know, he enforces the king's taxes, everyone hates the sheriff in Nottingham. And the script really does play on that because the whole taxation thing comes into the script. And it's it's shown that Tornum does not like having to be the bad guy who has to collect these taxes and that he wishes he didn't have to do it, but he does it because he has to. And I think that's really great. Now, Robin Hood, on the other hand, is a character who might... You never really get a good, strong grasp on him as a character, because he's not in it. He takes a while to show up in the script, and I do like the build-up to him. I do like how you're getting a little bit more of a morally gray sort of version of him, and I like how you see sort of the results of his, you know, outlawry, his stealing from the rich, from the perspective of one of his victims, because Tornum's entourage gets attacked and most of his stuff gets stolen, including that fucking chess set. But it provides an interesting sort of thing to him. Because you're used to reading a Robin Hood or watching a Robin Hood thing where you're going, yeah, yeah, rob those sons of bitches. But in this, it's like, damn, this kind of sucks for this guy whom we like. So do we really like what Robin Hood's doing? And I find that interesting because he is given a sympathetic backstory with the whole thing about the miller who killed the deer and whatnot. But then we get introduced to him and he's a huge kind of a dick. And then there's a scene where he gets caught cheating on Marion with some woman... But then he ends up being kind of heroic at the end, and it, it it's just a mixed bag because he's not developed as well as he... And also something that's weird about the whole Robin Hood thing is that they do bring up the, the Norman and Saxon tension, and Robin uses that as his main excuse. Um, I was a Saxon, and I, I would never have gotten justice under Norman lords. And it's what's interesting about that is that that was an idea that came relatively late into the Robin Hood mythos. I believe it was introduced by Sir Walter Scott when he used Robin Hood and Ivanhoe. But most historians nowadays believe that that by the time, you know, of Richard the Lionheart, the Normans and the Saxons would have, you know, they would have been, you know, furiously breed, interbreeding for a century or so, and so it wouldn't, it would have been really hard to tell the difference. And I'm like, oh, okay, it's not historically accurate, but this is playing on those ideas. But then Tornum in the script is like, actually points out, you know, 
can you even show me a pure-blooded Norman anymore, Robin? Like, we've been breeding like that for centuries. There are no more pure-blooded Normans. And so it makes me wonder what the script is going for. It's a little uneven because it's like they're trying to put in some period detail, trying to stay true to the Robin Hood mythos as we know it. So it doesn't quite work. And another thing about the Robin Hood mythos I don't think this really goes into all that well with is the Merry Men, because Little John basically has a walk-on cameo. None of the other Merry Men are given names. Friar Tuck is mentioned once, which that doesn't really lead to anything. I kind of talk about, I do like how strongly built up the Merry Men are, because you just hear about them, and then when Tardum first encounters them in the woods, like, they're, like, all creepy and masked and, like, sneaking around and disappearing into the greenery. It's actually pretty cool. But alright, so Tornum is investigating all this stuff, and he's trying to figure out what's going on, and you have Guy of Gisborne who's just kind of like, I don't know what any of this shit is, I don't know how arrows work, I don't know any of that. And then alright, so what happens is that Prince John ends up coming to Nottingham, and he's going to have a big hunt going on, and he talks to Tornum about how, you know, Yo, you're loyal to my brother, but he's away, and he could die any time, and I want to make sure you... He basically tries to bribe Tornum for his support, and Tornum just sort of, you know, pretends to be his loyal man. But then what's weird is that, and then what happens is that they're out on this hunting trip, and both Marion and Tornum, they save Prince John from a wild boar, and everyone's happy, and then Tornum tries to, like, Marion runs off into the woods, and Tornum tries to follow her, and this is where he gets, you know, his first meeting with the Merry Men. And he gets kidnapped by them and knocked out. And this is, okay, this is a weird part, because he wakes up tied spread-eagled to a tree, and Robin Hood is shooting arrows at him and almost missing. And basically just miss, just missing him. They kind of sort of do in the director's cut of the Ridley Scott movie, where he tortures a guy by just barely missing him with an arrow, and then actually shooting him through the hand with it. So they kind of brought that back, but it's not much of a scene. But this is weird, because Robin Hood... He shoots an arrow, which just barely misses hitting Tornum in the dick. And he goes, good thing that's not me, or else half my cock would have been gone. And I'm like, wait a minute, you stole that joke from a Steven Seagal movie. Yeah, the end of Hard to Kill, where he puts his gun between William Sadler's legs and, like, and, and purposely misses blowing his balls off. And he goes like, I missed! I never missed. They must have been smaller than I thought. If Robin Hood in this mo- in Robin Hood in this script at any point says, I'm going to take you to the blood bank. Good lord. These guys love their Seagull. But that's weird. And so they have their confrontation and eventually, you know, they let Tornum loose into the woods. And he makes his way back to civilization. To Nottingham. And it turns out that there has been another murder. And what's interesting about this scene is that he's investigating. And he asks the person who saw them last and the time when they found the body. And he determines that the time of death, and just by examining the crime scene as well, that the death would have occurred when... It would have occurred, like, right as the rain was... Right around the time it started raining. And the thing is that it started raining while he was with the Merry Men and Robin Hood in their lair. So now he knows that Robin Hood is not the killer. And that's actually pretty interesting, I think. And he also, you know, he collects the arrow and he discovers that there was... Um, honey, like some sort of residue of honey on the corpse's face, which he doesn't know what that is. But then later, I believe it's later that night in the script, he wakes up and has like a secret meeting with Eleanor of Aquitaine, who is Richard and John's mother. And what I like about this script is that she's included in here and she has some pretty snappy dialogue, which reminds me of A Lion in Winter, which was a movie, which is a play and then a movie about, you know, the Angevin Plantagenet family and, you know, Eleanor and her her husband, King Henry, and their and their prince sons, Richard, Jeffrey, and John. Really great film. And just the way she was written here, the little bit of dialogue she got, she did remind me of the Catherine Hepburn version of Eleanor of Aquitaine from that movie. So that gives, gives it points. That gives me points. I give it points for that. What I found really cool, though, was that, but no, she tells Tornum that it's word has gotten to them that Richard has been held hostage by Leopold of Austria and he's demanding a ransom. She, she gets, you know, Tornum to swear his loyalty to Richard and that the tax money will go to the ransom. And so the whole taxation thing happens and Tornum st- starts getting, you know, resented by the people because he's enforcing the taxation, which is indeed pretty harsh. And sort of, you know, three months, it, it's, it's sort of, there's a weird sort of time skip here, which I don't like, where it just jumps several months ahead. But also what happens during this time is that Prince John says, No, we're not going to 
spend money on, on the um, on the ransom. We're gonna do. It. He, he basically what he does is that he wants the ransom money to go to him to support you know his bid for the kingdom. But then Torna makes sure that a certain amount of the money goes to the ransom. It shows his loyalty to King Richard and how he's playing both sides here, which I think is kind of a cool aspect of the character. But there is, but like I said, there's a time jump, and you find out that there's been more and more deaths, and that he's been collecting all the arrows from them. And that he really doesn't have much in the way of clues, but there's an SP mark on the arrowhead, and he's learning how to do, he's learning how to shoot. He's being taught by Marion how to shoot a bow. And then more or less what ends up happening is that, is that he tells Marion that he's learned that Robert always goes to Mass and gets his confession from Friar Tuck at this abbey. But that's really, that he's going to go get Robin because that's his job. But what he's really doing is that he's tricking her into going to the, going to Robin in his lair so he can follow her and then talk to Robin. And so he does. And this is where the thing where Robin Hood cheats on Marion is. And she's like, oh, Robin, I don't like you anymore. But she forgets about that completely by the end. But no, they start talking and it's revealed that the SP on the arrow is the arrows that Prince John's men used when they were, you know, fighting you know, a, some skirmishes in Ireland. So they determined that Prince John is behind this in some fashion. But, the, and, and, and he, and, you know, he does tell Robin Hood he knows that Robin isn't the killer because of the time of death thing. And so what happens is that it turns out that, that Tordum was followed by Guy of Gisborne. And then Guy of Gisborne, you know, captures Robin and the Merry Men and such and such. And of course, everyone thinks that Tordum was the bastard and led them there. But it turns out that Thomas Leslie knew that Robin was good. Tornum, I mean, was going into the forest, and so he informed Guy of Gisborne what was happening, and you think, oh, it was a betrayal. But then it turns out, no, he was just concerned for his master's safety, blah, 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 so something potentially interesting that could have happened with that character doesn't happen. And, and what happens is that they, um, they decide that Robin is going to get a trial by combat because Prince John refuses to give him a trial by jury, so he decide, they decide to give him a trial by combat thinking he's going to die easily, and he has to sword fight Sir Guy of Gisborne. And what's cool about this scene is that Robin admits he has no idea how to use a sword. He's an archer first and foremost, and so he has to fight So he has to fight a really talented swordsman who is, who is Guy of Gisborne. And what I like about this is that you know they are known for fighting, in the original legends, but this is such a different fight. This is not the the Errol Flynn daring do just fencing like masters. This is very much a brutal do anything to win kind of fight. And Robin only begins to win because he because he fakes dead and then uses that to catch Guy off his guard and then he almost wins. And while this is going on, Tornum begins to suspect that Gisborne was is the killer because he worked because he served under Prince John in those Irish campaigns, and because you know he knows it was one of Prince John's men who fired the arrows because of you know, the mark on the arrows. Born so he makes excuses not to officiate at the trial by combat, and then he, he breaks into Guy of Gisborne's room and doesn't find any evidence, but he discovers that there's a secret passage behind the fireplace, and the passage leads him to that boarded off synagogue we talked about earlier, and in there he finds the arrows that would that would not only incriminate him, but he also finds these creepy wax death masks of all the victims there, which marks him out really as more of a serial killer than anything, which I thought that was really interesting. Like, it made him a little bit more of a creepy character, and it kind of fits with sort of the original legendary take on Guy of Gisborne, because Guy of Gisborne in the original, you know, ballads and whatnot, was a hired killer who was brought on by the sheriff of Nottingham to kill Robin Hood. And he's described as wearing, like, this weird, like, horse head skin hood with the mane still intact, and he almost reads like some sort of crazy wild man of the forest or something. And it was only later on that he became Sir Guy of Gisborne, and he became, you know, like, the noble arrival of Robin. That was a later edition. And I thought that was really cool that they combine those concepts here into into this character where he's nobility but he's also crazy and then killing these people and, and of course what ends up happening is that this is happening at the same time as the fight it turns out that because the ransom was sent richard is now on his way back to nottingham and he actually lays siege to nottingham when the fight's about is about over and so it gets interrupted and they don't settle things in trial by combat now I am a little iffy on the whole siege that happens here because it seems like it's tacked on to the end to have a big battle scene to, to end it off on. And it really doesn't feel like it fits the drama that's unfolding in the script because the big dramatic resolution feels like it should be the fight between Robin and Guy, but then that gets interrupted by the siege and then Guy has to flee. But pretty much what happens is that Richard is laying siege to the castle 
to Nottingham Castle. And what I found really cool was that Richard in this, he's, he's noted as speaking in French with subtitles, which is actually period accurate because Richard would have spoken French. It was believed that he only spoke French. He could not speak English. And in fact, he spent most of his adult life in his French territories, not because he was king of England. And this is weird. The Angevin Empire is weird because they were the kings of England and they ruled all this land in France, but they ruled it as vassals of the king of France. So yeah, it's weirdly complicated. But so Richard was believed to have spent as little as six months in England during his entire reign shows how good of a king he was. <laughs> so yeah, he would have spoken French, and so what happens that Tornum leads them to the secret passage, which then takes them inside the castle, and it turns the battle in their favor. And then Gisborne flees, grabs Marion, and he spears Thomas Leslie, which is his redemptive moment for being overprotective, which that character just feels like a huge waste. Oh, and I should mention the whole siege thing. It is relatively historically true, because... When King Richard came back, pretty much everyone came back to his side instead of Prince John, and the only holdout was Nottingham. So he had to lay siege to Nottingham. Now, John wasn't there. He ran like a little bitch and went to France and then hid there for several months before he begged his brother for forgiveness. But for dramatic reasons, I can see why they had Prince John in Nottingham in the script. But it's okay. He manages to get out. He... Gisborne manages to get off Marion in tow and heads for the woods. But Marion manages to kick and, and scrape and get away, and then Tordum pursues Gisborne into the woods. And there ends up just being this really tense sort of sequence where Gisborne is hunting down is hunting down Tornum with his arrows and just he gets him and he like shoots him a few times and he gets him in like the leg and the shoulder and so and so Tornum is just barely getting through this. It really feels like a slasher movie scene with the killer just stalking its victim. It's great. And and this is where Gisborne sort of reveals his motivations in that he got a taste for killing in, in the Irish campaigns. And when they got reassigned to England, which was at peace, he needed to find another outlet for his appetites. And there's a moment where he goes, remember what I told you? I didn't know anything about the bow. I lied, and I'm like, okay, that's a commando moment right there. <laughs> but I thought that was an interesting sort of depiction of him as being this guy who got a taste for killing in the war and had to do something about it when he came home. It's almost like they're making him a medieval analog for just the, the psychopathic Vietnam veteran. I thought that was an interesting way to take it. Now, what I don't understand here is, how did Gisborne killing these people with arrows and then pinning it on Robin Hood, how did that help Prince John and his... And his campaign to, you know, usurp Richard's throne, like, they're implied to have something to do with each other. I, I really wasn't sure on the connection between those two things. It wasn't entirely clear. That was something that could be fixed in a rewrite as well. Pretty much what happens is that Tornum manages to, you know, get the best of Gisborne by ripping the arrow out of his leg and the arrow out of his shoulder and then stabbing Gisborne with them and killing him. And it's a pretty brutal, interesting sequence. And then he wakes up on his sickbed and you find out that Richard is has restored Robin of Loxley to his lands and titles, and now Robin's going to marry Marion, and he's been spun into being the great hero of this situation when it was really torn him, and so he gets the credit for leading King Richard's people into Nottingham, and, and whereas Tornum just isn't going to get anything at all, and he'll always be remembered as the villain. And not only that, but he has to give up his position as the sheriff in Nottingham, because Richard decided he needs to go campaign in France now, and so he needs to get money, and he sells off the title. Now, a couple things about this. This is actually, you know, a fairly interesting point that it's making here about how the legend is based around, you know, what's convenient for Richard, because the implication is that Richard, you know, sides with Robin Hood here because, you know, he's the person the people love, whereas Tornum is hated because of the whole taxation thing. But it could be conveyed a little bit better. I would like to have seen a little bit more of that firsthand in the script instead of hearing about it from someone else while Tornum's on his deathbed. Not deathbed, sickbed. But I like how, um, but I do like how it leads into the ending. Because the ending is this fairly poignant scene where, where Robin and Tornum are sort of talking to each other. It's right outside, you know, Robin's wedding with Marion, and Robin says, well, Tornum, what are you going to do? And he says, well, I could accept this position to go on campaign with Richard, but I don't know what I'm going to do. So Robin goes into the wedding, and Tornum and Marion look at each other a little bit, and, you know, they think about what might have been, but then, you know, it's gone within a few seconds. I will admit, as much as I don't think the whole love triangle thing went anywhere, I do like that little moment at the end, like, I wish, like, the rest of it was as good as that. And then Tornum just sort of rides off into, you know, the fog of history and is lost forever. You know, he's just remains a part of the legend and where he's nameless. He's just the Sheriff of Nottingham, basically a dehumanized character. And I thought that was a really poignant, moving sort of way to end it. 
Just to sort of sum up my thoughts on the script as a whole, I do think it's pretty good. I think that I think that Robin Hood could have used a little more screen time just to develop his character a little more so we understood him and developed his love story with Marion a little more because it gets to a point where it's like, I don't even understand what, what she sees in this guy because it's not an arranged marriage. She's very much, you know, in love with him. I just would have liked a little more clear of an answer as to why. You know, cleaned up that time jump in the middle, which was just clean up the ending a little bit to make Richard's motivations a little more clear, the way he screws over Tornum and sides with Robin Hood, and then clear up what exactly, you know, how Prince John benefited from all these people being killed and then Robin and getting executed. Like, I don't see how that would have solidified his usurpation of the throne. Also, fix some of the bad dialogue, like the I lied and the there's a new sheriff in town, and maybe drop the hard to kill, but, you know, you know, that is that. Clean up, you know, the love story a little bit. Uh, just just polish the thing as a whole. It needs polish. It's a first draft, and it's a good first draft. It just needed a little more polish. It didn't need getting rewritten into some Magna Carta, Robin Hood posing as a noble, blah, 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 whatever. I think the whole Sheriff of Nottingham concept is a lot more interesting than what we got. And also, one little problem with this is that the resolution to the mystery is fairly obvious, because if you know your Robin Hood lore, or even just vaguely familiar with it, you know Guy of Gisborne is a bad guy. That's just something that's known, like he's one of the big Robin Hood villains. And so when you're wondering who could be the killer, the first person you go to is Guy of Gisborne. Bad guy who is in a lot of this script, because it can't be Robin Hood, because you know it's not going to be. The madman, who's basically a red herring, you know it's not going to be him, because that's too obvious. And it's just like, okay, Guy of Gisborne, it's going to have something to do with Prince John taking over the throne. It's the really obvious way to take it, so maybe clean that up a little bit. But yeah, on the whole, though, I think if this just had a few alterations and a few fixes here and there and just, you know, polish it and clean it up, this would have been a pretty damn good movie and a lot better than the Ridley Scott Robin Hood, which was just boring. This might not have been amazing, but it wouldn't have been boring, that's for sure. It would have been an interesting take on the material. So yeah, that's my sort of my final thoughts on Nottingham. I think it's flawed but interesting, and... I wish they would have made this, like they would have worked on this a little more and then kept developing the concept. But yeah, as far as it goes, I think it's one of the better ones I've read, and that's going to be me signing off, and check us out on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter. Yeah, we got a page on iTunes and Stitcher Radio, so come check us out there, and until next time, bye!